Well, good morning. I hope that you are doing well this morning. I'm grateful that we're able to to do this. Uh, Before we begin, I want to also thank James for the work he's doing in choosing the songs for us to uh, listen to, sing along with uh, during these Sunday morning worship times in our own homes. He really is doing a great service to us, isn't he? And he's teaching us, in fact, through the songs that he is choosing for us to see and hear. So we're grateful for his work in that. Now, for our time together in God's Word this morning, I'll ask you to turn with me to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 40. We are pausing for another week in our study of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look together at some amazing statements this morning made by Jesus in this passage. These are statements that are helpful to us at all times, but perhaps especially in our current context. So I'll begin by reading for us Matthew 25, verses 31 to 40, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And it says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you, in, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before we move on, would you close your eyes with me? Let's pray together and ask the Lord to guard us and to bless us in this time. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are so grateful for what you've done for us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the peace that it grants us. Uh, to know uh, that our uh, our greatest need has been met, our greatest source of fear has been um, has been removed from us by the shed blood of Christ. It's for His sake that we worship You. It's through Him that we worship You. And Lord, as we now hear from Him and Your Word, we ask that You would guard us in our thinking, that You would feed us by Your Word as You promised to do. And we thank You for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to open up the book of Matthew with your eyes closed and just put your finger down onto a page at random, you've got a very good chance of opening your eyes on a section dealing specifically with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a major theme in the book of Matthew. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. He's the only one to do that in the New Testament. In the book of Matthew is 28 chapters long. Kingdom of heaven is a phrase that shows up 32 times in that book. So it's a major theme. 
And we're in chapter 25 here of Matthew. For much of the past five chapters, he has been telling parables and giving descriptions of the kingdom, saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then going into description. He does that on a number of occasions. Uh, One place I want to draw your attention to before we start to work through this morning's passage in earnest is uh, to, to flip maybe just one page to the left. Find Matthew 24, verse 30. I want you to notice, uh, I'm going to read verses 30 and 31 so that you can see um, the overlap, so that you can see that in our passage in Matthew 25, Jesus is both continuing the thought and giving more detail to the thought that he had been on in chapter 24 here. So he's speaking to his disciples, and he says in verses 30 and 31, he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Stop there. Now, if you you just look at the first two verses of our passage this morning, Matthew 25, 31, and 32, you'll see a number of overlaps. Both of them speak of the Son of Man coming with great glory, accompanied by his angels, and gathering this people before him. But do you notice in chapter 24, what was emphasized was the gathering of his elect, it said. Here in our passage, in verse 32 of chapter 25, who is gathered? You see that What's different is it speaks here of all the nations being gathered and then separated. And then in verse 34, he's going to beckon a group of them to come inherit the kingdom. And what I gather from from that is that Jesus' point here now in chapter 25 is to give further detail about this question. Who inhabits the coming kingdom? Who will be the inhabitants of this kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is going to answer that question in two ways, or from two, from two um, points. And these will be the two points that we'll deal with the passage in this morning. The first, I think, is easier to see and understand than the second. So we'll spend more time on the second. But here are those two points so that you can know where we're going. We'll see first Jesus talk about the source of the sheep's renewed identity. That will be in verses 32 to 34, the source of their renewed identity. And second, we'll see him talk about the fruit of the sheep's renewed identity. That'll be verses 35 to 40. So really, the the emphasis here is on these sheep, uh, their identity. Who are they? We'll look at the source of that renewed identity and then at the fruit of it. First, the source. Uh, what what is different about the sheep when compared to the goats? Uh, and what accounts for that difference? That's what Jesus is going to be giving us here. But before we focus in on the sheep themselves, those who are separated to the right of the king, those who will inhabit the kingdom, let's think about the whole gathering here in verse 32. It says in verse 32, Before him will be gathered all the nations. Just imagine this gathering. This is a gathering of every human being in all of human history before the throne of the king. And can you imagine that? And think of them all collectively. What do they have in common before they are separated out? What do they share in common? We know there's 
several things that they share in common. All of them, for example, were natural-born rebels against this king that they're standing in front of, right? None of them deserve to stand blameless before him. This is something that they've all got in common. And yet, we can tell by what happens, there is something different about them, isn't there? Somehow, this group that shares that in common are then taken by this king and perfectly and rightly divided into two groups. You have those who he says are his sheep and those who are goats. Verse 32, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He is the shepherd and he has come for his sheep. The king has come to claim those who are his. What's different about this group is the fact that they belong to the king. So we know things from the rest of scripture, like John chapter 10 tells us that this king has laid down his life for this group that he now moves to his right. Colossians 1, God has rescued this group from the dominion of darkness and transferred them into his kingdom. I draw these things out to make something very clear here as we're thinking about the identity of these sheep. What makes the sheep sheep has nothing to do in the first place with them. And it has everything to do with this king. Their sheepness is a reflection and a result of what he has done. That's what we see here. And it's seen in the way that they're described in verse 34. What does the king say to them in verse 34? Well, it reads like this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. See how he speaks of them? This is no group of outperformers on the right here, is it? It's a group that has received undeserved grace from the king. And that grace is the source of their renewed identity. Now, that's really an important thing for us to understand before we come into verse 35. This is not a people who has earned a thing in terms of their standing before the king or their right to his kingdom. The source of the sheep's renewed identity. And I mean, let's just own it this morning because we know that he is talking about you and me. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and King, he's talking about you. The source of our renewed identity is that we have been given a blessing, undeserved, from our gracious Father. But we can be even more specific than that. We don't have to speak in general, because the gift that we're blessed with here, when it speaks of us being blessed by the Father, is not a general, generic blessing. We know, don't we, that all mankind has received incredible blessings from God, haven't they? That's not what's being spoken of here. Uh, The blessing that's being described here is a blessing that bears manifestation in our lives. It's a blessing of which we have experience. It is the blessing of the gift of faith. We see this throughout the scriptures. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Speaking of the entire process there. 1 Peter 1.5 says that we are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, that is what we're seeing unfold in Matthew chapter 25, isn't it? A people protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, and it's being revealed right then, 
and they're protected through faith. Romans 4 says that the realization of God's promises in a person's life depends upon faith. And 1 John 5, 4, I mean, this is an amazing statement. John wrote, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I mean, much is put on this faith that we are blessed with by our Father. Our faith is that through which we are saved, Ephesians 2, through which we are protected by the power of God, 1 Peter 5, through which the promises of God are realized, Romans 4. So there are two things that can be said about what identifies this people on the king's right hand, these sheep. What identifies them? Well, they are blessed by the king. That's the source of their their renewed identity here as sheep. And they are those whose faith is in Christ. That's what, uh, that's, this is the source of their renewed identity. And those are one and the same. And let's not go on before we just take a minute and, and appreciate what we have just said about this. Now, I'm, you know, I'm speaking to a local church this morning. I'm speaking to a gathering of God's people. So I'm assuming some things here. Uh, our faith in Christ is what unites us. So I'm speaking to you on that basis. Do you just notice a brother or sister of mine here who loves the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice that there are many people around you who have received many blessings in this life. Maybe in certain areas, uh, blessings that go beyond the, the ways that God has blessed you in those areas. There are many people who have received those blessings who have not been blessed with faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is a gift that's given to them. That does not not diminish responsibility. It's equally true to say of them that they have refused to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's true to put it this way as well. They've not been blessed with that gift. Do you see how precious your faith in Christ is that God has blessed you with? I mean, it will literally determine which of these two groups you find yourself in on that day. If we never receive another blessing from his hand in this life, but he has granted us that blessing, just remember this morning that with it, through it, comes a beckoning into the kingdom of heaven when our Lord returns. There's so much hope and contentment in that realization. Now, this leads us to the second thing that we see in our text this morning. Uh, Moving on from the source of our renewed identity, we begin to hear from Jesus about the fruit of that renewed identity. And the, the question that we have to ask and start to deal with coming into verse 35 is, what is the significance, what's the purpose of the passage that comes after what we've seen? Verses 35 to 40, what's the significance there? And if you look back down, starting in verse 35, you can see why it's such an important question. Because after all that we've just said about uh, the gift of God that has been given to us as a blessing, after all of that, verse 35 is going to start with a because word, for, and then it's going to go into a list of what they did. What does that mean? Does this tell us that they actually did earn their place in the kingdom? And I want to give the answer to this question at the outset and then spend time showing us how we get there from the text. The short answer to that question is no, 
Jesus is not describing a people earning their entrance into the kingdom. The long answer, and the one that we will now see laid out in these verses, is this. Jesus is putting flesh and bones onto the same truths that he revealed in the Beatitudes back in chapter 5. He's showing that when that group of men and women on the right, the sheep, when they are granted entrance into his kingdom, the difference between sheep and goat is not going to be seen as arbitrary. But in fact, that those differences are certain to be accompanied by evidence. We could put it this way. The sheep will have proven their loyal, genuine love for the king, and the goats will have proven their lack of it. We will see that the emphasis of verses 35 to 40 is not at all the actions of the sheep, but the love for Christ that motivated their lives. What I'd like to do is to reread as quickly here verses 35 to 40, get back into the forefront of our minds. And then I want us to think about the principles that Jesus is describing here. I want us to understand his main points uh, in giving this list. And then I want us, I want, I'd like to emphasize two applications of it, given how Jesus has stated these things. So let me reread, and actually let me start in verse 34. Read verses 34 to 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So first let's be sure we understand Jesus' point in giving this list of six deeds, this example list. That's what it is. It's not exhaustive. Uh, In verses 35 to 39, we see these six actions described. And it seems like we're given a framework for hearing these activities in pairs. They don't fall out like that if you just go by the verse numbers that we have in our Bibles. But you might notice that when, when these actions are repeated in verses 37 to 39, they're stated in pairs there. Two of them together in one question in 37, and again in 38, and again in 39. I want us to think about the character traits that are displayed specifically in this list first. The king is declaring that these on his right were willing to suffer personal loss in a number of ways. They were willing to suffer loss of possessions, which is what happens when you meet people's physical needs of hunger and thirst. You give of your things. They were willing to suffer loss of sense of safety or security which is what happens when you welcome strangers or you visit the sick or you visit those who are in prison. You're giving up something of yours, a sense of safety and security. They're willing to suffer the loss of perhaps personal honor or certainly comfort, clothing the naked, 
which I take as really representative of a whole host of, of activities that involve meeting needs in dishonorable situations, um, awkward or uh, humiliating situations. That's what they were willing to give up. You could also describe it in terms of what they showed as well. I mean, in each of these, this is a people, the king says, who were willing to display selflessness, empathy, and certainly humility. I mean, all three of those things in these situations. Now, we're limiting our attention this morning up to verse 40. But if you read on, you see that those very same situations are the ones in which the goats showed themselves unwilling. They would not suffer those losses for the sake of the king. They would not display those character traits to the king. And it's on that basis that he says, depart from me. Now, can I tell you, there is a tendency, I think we have, in reading this account, that is dangerous and that we need to avoid. See if you've already done this or not. We have a tendency to jump to verse 40. To jump to the notion that Jesus is speaking about serving other common people in need. Can I ask you this morning, don't do that. (laughs) Please recognize first that the king is declaring the criteria here. What is the acceptable evidence upon which one is shown to have the gift of true faith in Christ? What's the evidence? And here's what Jesus says. The evidence is whether they have lived their life in loving service to the king. It's to the king. He says, come inherit the kingdom for I was, and then you did that. And in the next section, depart from me, accursed ones, for I was this, and you did not do that to me. We can't jump down to the closing statement of verse 40. There is something in between that is supposed to get us there. We can't jump past it. And what gets us there is this shared confusion that both groups experience. Do you notice that both groups are confused at the evaluation? And so both groups receive some instruction here in how Jesus evaluates all of this. For both of them, the confusion comes. Uh, and I think we can we can uh, overcomplicate this. I think we're meant to see the situation as it's described. The confusion comes for both of them as they stand looking at this majestic king in his glory, being told of what they did for him or didn't do for him. And they're thinking, when did I interact with him? <laughs> I think I would have remembered that. When did that happen? Let's see each of these confusions one at a time. The, the sheep first. The sheep are confused that they ever served the king like this. Now, by the way, this confusion is a strong statement against the notion that this work was done in order to earn salvation from the king. The people in this scenario didn't even know that they had served him in these ways. The goats are confused as well. They're confused that they had refused to serve him like this. Again, think in a straightforward way about the image in front of us. They aren't claiming that they had in fact served him. They're claiming that they had never been in that situation and rejected service to him. They're questioning when they came into contact with this king and refused to serve him. That's what they say in verse 44. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger 
or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you. Jesus is revealing something in both groups at the same time. And it provides the evidence of what true faith looks like in the human experience. Jesus is describing their confusion here like he does. I've learned I have a pause button I can hit here to spare you from hearing me cough, so you're welcome. Uh, where Jesus' description of their confusion, I mean, really, this is a buildup to what comes next, and it is quite a buildup. Um, and truly, it is building up. But verse 40 is the climax of the picture. This is the intent. Verse 40 is the place where Jesus has been building toward and where his main point lies. And so here it is. Here's what we see. Kingdom citizens will be proven legitimate in that the king's love will be shown to have become their love. They will love with the love with which he loves. This is what will be put on display. There are two things that God makes clear about himself and his love throughout the text of Scripture that we see specifically here in these sheep as well. Number one, we see throughout Scripture that God's loving care is seen every time he provides good for those in need. And in particular, particularly emphasized, is the way that God helps the helpless. The way he helps those that the strong wouldn't expect him to help. I mean, we have even, you know, we've mentioned the Beatitudes before. You remember Matthew 5, 44 and 45, the shocking words of Jesus. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? This surprising display of love that uh, Jesus says is a demonstration of our sonship, the fact that we are imaging our Father. But even more basic than that, how often is God described in his regard for the lowly, for the humble, for the needy. Do you remember how rigorous he was in the Mosaic law concerning treatment of the widow and the foreigner and the poor in their midst? And in verse 40 of our passage, Jesus goes out of his way to contrast the glory and honor of the king, that high glory and honor, with the lowliness of the individual that he is referencing, and then he unites them together. He says, as you did it to one of the least of these. John Nolan commentates on this passage, and he writes that Jesus' description here is a mouthful. He says the phrase is clearly intended to mark a maximal contrast with the king. And this helps us to understand how the sheep-goat difference really looked oftentimes in their lives. The goats of the next passage over here, the goats would never have turned down a chance to serve the glorious king when he had need because they saw him as important, as worthy of it, as certainly capable of rewarding them. But Jesus plainly states here that they had characteristically overlooked the needs of the lowly. And what that does is it betrays an absence of the love of God who has displayed that priority throughout his revelation. I want to read to you, I mentioned John Nolan. I'm going to read a quote uh, that he writes about this. It's a little long. It is excellent. 
and it really puts the finger on uh, the, the distinction that Jesus is making here. So just listen to this. Nolan writes this. He says, the value, uh, he begins by setting up here a, uh, an idea, all right? He says, the value of service is dependent on the status of the one being served. Therefore, service to the least will instinctively be considered as of little consequence, while service to the king will be seen as something that obviously matters. Now listen to what Nolan says. This assumption is both appealed to and subverted by Jesus. The perce- he continues, the perception of the righteous that they did only what was of little consequence, right? That's their confusion. When did we do this for the king? The perception of the righteous that they did only what was of little consequence will be answered with the assertion that they served the king himself in his needs. The perception of the others that they failed to do only what was of little consequence will be answered by the assertion that they failed to serve the king in his needs. I mean, that, that is exactly the, the uh, truth that Jesus is exposing here. Now, that general love for the lowly, the needy, uh, that is seen in God is present here in his commendation of the sheep and his indictment against the goats. That, that is clearly a component here. However, it is not the only focus, nor is it the main focus of Jesus' words. There's another level of the love of God that's on display in these sheep sheep, that Jesus puts particular emphasis on here. And that is the love of Christ's unique love for his bride. Let's put it that way. Jesus does care for human suffering. But Jesus does not identify himself with people who suffer generally. Jesus identifies himself with his people. As he says here in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. David Platt writes about this statement, and he says something I think is very very true. He says, Many people are confused about this passage, taking the point to be... That whenever we do something good for someone, it's the same as doing it for Jesus. That line of thinking misses part of Jesus' point. Verse 40 helps us to understand this passage rightly, as Jesus says, of these brothers of mine. The point is that Jesus is identifying himself with his followers, his brothers, those who have trusted in him. We can think of Jesus' appearance to Paul, then called Saul in Acts chapter 9. You remember what he asked him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. He identifies with his people, with his brothers. And in this way, then, I think the most direct application of Jesus' statement here to the sheep really are the sorts of things that we have seen recently in 1 Corinthians 12, the many parts of the body working together, valuing one another, and truly caring for one another. <clears throat> Do you remember when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12:25 about there being no, quote, no division, no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. 
If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I mean, there is this, this great sense of unique priority because of the unique commitment, the unique bond that is shared by those members of the same body. And you have, of course, Paul's very striking words in Galatians 6.10. He said there, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's a distinction that he is making there, and it's one that really fits very well with our passage this morning. Let's notice again the directness of Jesus' emphasis here. As you did it to, I'm mean, just look at the, it was mentioned, Nolan talked about this being a mouthful of descriptive words. Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Very direct, very focused on the, on the lowness by some standards with which Jesus himself identifies. This is just another appearance of what has been called the upside-down kingdom of God. Have you ever heard that? What's the kingdom of God like? The least are the greatest. Those who lead are those who serve. As we find ourselves willing to suffer loss, in order to care for the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters, I mean, even those who would be thought of by the world as the least, to meet needs, to give up time or comfort or safety even, in order to bear one another's burdens, what we will find on that day is that we will have been serving Jesus himself. To just such an extent does our Lord identify with us in our suffering. These are precious things to be reminded of. Now, how, how does this uh, play out in our lives? There are two applications of Jesus' words in our passage this morning that come very naturally out of the text. How would we apply what Jesus is teaching us here in his word? And I think especially in the, in the unique times that we're in right now, these, these come into play and they're even more uh, important for us to be reminded of. The first way we could apply his statements here, I think, is this. We should see this as a call. Be invigorated again. The Lord has spoken to us this morning concerning these things. Be invigorated in your desire to serve the needs around you, especially for those that you have covenanted yourself to in this church. Remember that as you meet those needs, it is Jesus himself that you serve. I mean, it really is. Have you ever felt at moments overwhelmed with love and gratitude to the Lord and wished that you had more, more ways to show that or to live it out? Well, he is talking to you right here. He's not left us to wish that. He, he sees self-sacrificing service to our brothers and sisters as service to him directly. He sees it that way. And so what else matters? We must see it that way as well. And that certainly can and does and should include service to our brothers and sisters globally, the, the invisible church. This, this comes into play as we pray for and give to mission work abroad that we're involved with. 
as we you know even decide nationally to maybe give or volunteer or otherwise work to enhance ministries in other parts of the country. But I really appreciate the example of Paul Washer. Paul Washer is a he's a pastor, a preacher. He's the founder of a global ministry. I heard him once say this to a group of people as he was describing the ministry that he that he leads. He said, if you're not giving, sacrificing for the local church family that God has put you into, please do not give anything to us. Because you'll be neglecting your first priority in fulfilling the things that Jesus speaks of here in Matthew 25. I so appreciate the sensitivity uh, of, of those sorts of words. There is a personal nature to burden-bearing like is being described, that can only happen in a local church family. It doesn't Again, doesn't diminish the significance of those other things, but it does tell us that the Lord has placed us into a, into a local church family and that unique things happen and are lived out in that context. Remember, too, that Paul wrote that God's kingdom, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 4.20, that God's kingdom consists not in words but in power, you understand what the distinction is that he's making there? The the test of true faith in Christ really is the transforming power that that faith has in our lives. That's why I mean, so much of what we're talking about this morning in Matthew 25 is speaking to the point of the book of, of James. That's why James called it a dead faith when one sees, and notice how he put it, when one sees his brother or sister in need and says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but does not step out and provide for them, even sacrificially, even in a way that sacrifices not just possessions, but perhaps safety, security, comfort. He calls it a dead faith. So again, be invigorated in your desire to serve the needs that God has made you known, has made known to you uh, in your context. Second application of, of the passage this morning would be a call to remember. Remember the criteria that Jesus declares here, especially when you think about what marks those who know God, those who walk with God. Remember that the damnation of the goats, for example, was not because they did no good deeds to those around them. What was the specific criteria that we've seen from Christ this morning? The damnation of the goats came because they did not serve the king The kingdom of God was not built for nice guys. The kingdom of God was built for servants of the king, his sheep. And when we talk to people about the gospel and they defend themselves on the basis of their relative goodness, you know how often that happens. We need to have it clear in our own minds that relative goodness is not what's at issue here. What's at issue is that the kingdom of God has been prepared before the foundation of the world for the servants of the king. And the only thing that will matter on that day, when we are gathered from the four winds before the throne, the only thing that's going to matter will be, what was my relationship to King Jesus? Did I love him? Or more importantly and more more correctly to our text this morning, I think we can see, more more importantly, Had he loved me and granted me his love? That's the question that it hangs on. 
And it will be clear, the answer will be clear in who we love and how we love. And my friends, we may well be entering into a time that will surpass any that we've ever had in our lives in terms of the opportunities that we will have to put this on display. And as that happens, may the love of our Savior so shine in us that others will see our works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Father, we, we stop now and again give you thanks. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the power of the Holy Spirit that attends it and that applies it to us. Lord, we long for the day when your Son will return. And in the meantime, Father, it is, it is, it is of the utmost importance to us that we be seen by you working faithfully, loving you diligently, relying wholly and completely on the finished work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May you be pleased in how you see your love at work in us, and we thank you for applying it to us. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll close our time this morning by by reading the reference that I mentioned there at the end. Uh, You probably could tell that was coming from Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. Let me close by reading those three verses. Jesus said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.